When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, there's certainly a lot of confusing things in this passage, aren't there? So we need to pray because we need the Spirit to illuminate His Word so that we can draw near to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You've given us Your Word and that all of it is useful. But all of it isn't equally clear. So give us Your Spirit to discern this morning uh, what we can learn about who we are, what we can learn about Your character, and most of all, what we can learn about what You've done for us through Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. About 15 years ago, a uh, sociologist at Notre Dame named Christian Smith wrote a book called Soul Searching. This book was uh, about millennials and uh, what they thought about God and, and all these sorts of things. And uh, the big takeaway from that book <laughs> was that while millennials were moving away from established religion and more and more identifying as you know, not particularly religious or not affiliated, they thought, and this was key, most millennials thought that they basically believed the same things as their parents. And what Christian Smith does in the middle of this book is stop and reflect on what the default American religious belief is. And he calls it this. He calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, now, there's a long story there that I can't tell all of it, but it basically is this. That God, while... And most people still believe in God in some way, shape, or form. God, while he probably started the world, set it in motion, is distant, not really engaged. That's the deism piece. That you... You are supposed to be a good person, and most people basically are. That's the moralistic piece. And that the goal of life is to be happy and well-adjusted. That's the therapeutic piece. And what's interesting about moralistic therapeutic deism is that on the one hand, while it touches on things that are orthodox Christianity, it completely reverses the story. See, God recedes into the background. Not the main character of the story, but rather just part of our background story. The story is mostly about us. 
It is about what we achieve. It is about the rewards for those achievements. But this morning, what we're seeing here in Genesis 6, what we've been seeing all along in Genesis, is that God is a personal God, engaged in our lives in a meaningful way, and that God is the main actor in the story of the world. That the story of the cosmos is fundamentally about God and who He is and what He has done. So Genesis 6, the beginning here, tells us really in some ways the story that is the story of the world. It is a story about our sin. It is a story about God's sorrow and God's salvation. Sin, sorrow, and salvation. We left off last week thinking about sin here. We left off last week thinking about Cain and Abel and that story of the first two brothers and one rising up and killing the other. And what follows in the second half of Genesis 4 and through Genesis 5 is the unfolding story of humanity through a set of genealogies. First through Cain's genealogy and then through Seth's genealogy. Seth is the next child born to Adam and Eve. And so the story kind of (laughs) of humanity from this point is told through that genealogy. So this is really important. We're not, we didn't obviously read through the genealogies. That would take us quite a long time. Uh, but they are instructive. And the reason genealogies are there is not so that we just have a family tree. You know, lots of people are interested in family trees, right? And you probably have. There's always somebody in someone's family, right, who's, who, you know, somehow traces their ancestry back to... It's always some major figure in wherever your family is from, you know... Uh, somehow, if you're Scottish, you're definitely related to Robert the Bruce, some way, shape, or form. Um, if you're, you know, anyway, go on. But the point of the matter is, it's not just a family tree. The way it works is like, some, some scholars have said, it's like a resume. Uh, it's a selective telling. It's not, it's not every single person always. It's, it's meant to tell a story. It's meant to say something about the characters involved. It isn't to say it's misleading, but it's, it's, it's meant to communicate something specific. What's interesting about the, the, the genealogy of Cain that leads us into, you know, is one of the things that leads us into chapter 6 here, is that we learn the seventh person down the line. Now, seven is an important number, you may remember in Genesis. It's the completion of something. The seventh person is a guy named Lamech. This is in chapter 4, starting at verse 19. And we hear that Lamech takes two wives, collecting women. And then he brags about killing somebody that injured him. And then, if that's not enough, he says, oh yeah, you remember how God was going to avenge Cain? Well, I will avenge myself seven times that, or 77 times that. He starts to take on, as it were, a kind of divine prerogative for retribution. Cain is not a good, or Malek is not a, can't pronounce it, Lamech is not a good dude. Uh, There's all kinds of problems. So when we get to the beginning of chapter 6 here, we're getting sort of a summary of all this history since Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. And we get to what is a very confusing (laughs) 
set of terms. The sons of God taking the daughters of man. I'm sure that stood out to you. It's weird. Every biblical scholar, by the way, acknowledges this is a weird set of phrases. It only kind of comes up here. We're not really sure what to make of it. There are several lines of arguments. Some have said there are angels that are intermarrying with humans. And while, while that actually has a long history of people interpreting that way, it doesn't really seem to make any sense with the rest of the Bible. Uh, others have said that this represents the two lines, the line of Cain and the line of Seth. Uh, Seth's line having more, we'll look at that in a minute, but having more faithfulness to God are described as sons of God. And that, that could be the case. It's also the case that it actually isn't, the, the phrase shouldn't be translated the sons of God. It might be translated, or better translated, the sons of the gods. It is a bizarre feature of Hebrew that the word God is plural grammatically. And so when, now most of the time, you know when it's talking about the true, the one true living God, because it then uses uh, singular pronouns to talk about him, it's, and it's pretty obvious from the context what it's talking about. But in this case, it could well be that these are people that think of themselves as the sons of gods, as indeed every king in the ancient Near East did. So this is a story about the abuse of power which might make more sense then out of verses, verse 4, where we hear about uh, Nephilim, we don't exactly know what that word means, uh, and the mighty men, the mighty men of renown, these are people who ruled by right. Whatever the case may be, <laughs> this actually is, instru- this is an instructive moment, if we can kind of follow rabbit trail for one second. Not every passage in the Bible is crystal clear. Our own confession you know, says this, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known and believed and observed for salvation, they are. And, what, and no matter what we make of admittedly this kind of strange turns of phrase about the sons of God and the daughters of man, don't miss the takeaway from it. Verse 5, that God saw that every intention of the thoughts of men's hearts are only evil continually. So however exactly that we understand what's going on there, God tells us the takeaway. That evil is spreading unchecked. And that that evil is not easily done away with. It is the evil of the heart. In fact, if you... This is all lead up to the flood, <laughs> if, if, you, if, that, if that isn't clear to you yet. Uh, it will be next week. But this is all the background of the story of Noah's Ark and the flood. And we learn after that in chapter 8, verse 21, that the same heart problem is still there. Which means that what we're being told here, and all this stuff that is a little hard to get our heads around, is that people are messed up. People are sinful. And that that sin is not merely a matter of external performance, but is a matter of the heart. In Presbyterian circles, we talk, you know, we talk about total depravity, is this word that you know, we use, or this phrase that we use to talk about it. 
It's a little bit hard to understand because as Americans, we're just uncomfortable with sin talk in general, right? Or when we do, we use it kind of tongue-in-cheek. When we're talking about, we talk about chocolate being sinful. But what the Bible is telling us is that actually we are deeply, profoundly, permanently messed up. That is, if we're left to ourselves. And we've seen even in the course of Genesis here that, it, that you can identify sin by breaking God's law, but that the law was meant to be a reflection of his character. And so that sin itself is relational primarily. It is about an offense to God. And the results of it are incalculable. It affects our relationship to God. It affects our relationship with others, with even the way we understand ourselves individually. It affects our relationship to the world. It has in many ways broken the world. And so we go after, we run after all sorts of sources for meaning and purpose and security. This is in some ways a story we've been telling since we got into Genesis 3. But here we're seeing just how, how far it spreads. When we talk about total depravity, we are not saying that you are the worst version of yourself that you could possibly be. <laughs> it could get worse. Right? Um, we're not saying that any particular person is necessarily the worst version of themselves that they could possibly be. However, my, however much you may think that about some people in your life, they're not. In fact, the various conditions of our lives often restrain us. Uh, that we have competing desires that sometimes distract us from following perhaps to the worst ends. But it is saying that our hearts are ever and always inclined towards evil. That left to ourselves, we will pursue it. And that even when we do good things, the stain of sin is always on them. And in fact, we take those moments when we do good things and build up our pride build up our own arrogance, our own sense of our goodness over against others. So that sin is always there. One of the most powerful illustrations of this uh, comes from Hannah Arendt. I don't know uh, if you know who she is. She wrote a book called Eichmann in Jerusalem. She was a reporter who reported on the trial of Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was one of the architects of the Holocaust. He was a Nazi officer who came up with the final solution, as they called it. Uh, he, he, ran, he escaped, by the way, to Argentina, and they didn't find him for years. And when they finally did, they brought him to trial in Jerusalem. And what Arendt started to realize as she was watching this trial unfold was that evil is not committed by monsters that are exceptions, but rather by normal people. This is what she says. The trouble with Eichmann was precisely that so many were just like him, and that the many were neither perverted nor sadistic, that they were and still are terribly and terrifyingly normal. From the viewpoint of our legal institutions and of our moral standards of judgment, this normality was much more terrifying than all the atrocities put together. She was horrified, not by the body count, not by the forms of torture that were invented, 
Though those things were awful. She's not in any way justifying those. But by realizing that he was just an ambitious bureaucrat. And that is how he ended up doing the monstrous things that he did, which means he is just like anybody. That the difference, in other words, in evil is not a distinction of kind between person to person, but a difference of degree. That is the profound reality of who we are. So the Bible tells us over and over and over again is that the difference between me and anybody else is just a matter of degree. It is a matter of the circumstances in our lives. Again, if we're left to ourselves. And this message then is contrary to what we hear over and over and over again, that you should be unapologetically yourself. Because this is the deal. If you're unapologetically yourself, no one wants to see that. You don't want to see the unapologetic version of Jeremy. You don't. It's messy. It's evil. Instead, what the Bible calls us to be is repentantly ourselves. See, this is the deal. While we are told you will be freed up, you won't feel ashamed, you won't feel guilty if you're unapologetically yourself, what the Bible tells us is if you're unapologetically yourself, you will hurt people over and over and over again, and you will hurt yourself. And most of all, most of all, you'll offend God. You'll grieve God. That is your default mode if you're just being unapologetic of yourself. And this is a hard truth because we don't like to confront our own evils that we've committed, the, own wrong, the wrongs that we've done. We don't like to do that. And when we do, or when we're forced to, we are crushed by guilt or flooded with shame, or both. But on the other hand, it's so helpful to see that when we start to own up to this, it's actually freeing. Because it means you do not have to pretend, keep up the pretense of your own inherent goodness. You don't have to continue to pretend that you are perfect, that you are good, or that you live up to whatever the standard of your community are. You can begin to be honest. That's actually the honesty that is the beginning of being freed of guilt and shame, is to no longer keep up the pretense that I'm without guilt. That's the freedom the Bible offers. And the beginning of it is recognizing this bad news about who we are. The bad news that is the backdrop of the good news. It always starts here. And notice God's response, his sorrow. So look, we bring sin to the table, but notice God's response. See, because he begins by saying, Or the first time we hear God in this passage, in verse 3, he says, my spirit will not abide this. You're getting 120 years. Now, this is another weird point of interpretation. What does this 120 years mean? Many people have noticed through those genealogies that we didn't read um, that people live really long lives. And so one interpretation is that God is saying, look, after the flood, lives are going to start to shorten. Because 120 years, I mean, that's kind of, you know, most people don't live to that, but really, you never hear about somebody living past that kind of thing. 
So, okay, that makes a certain amount of sense. I get it. Um, some people have thought these numbers are symbolic or you know, other things, which, but it's hard to come up with any coherent <laughs> explanation of what the symbolism actually is. There's something interesting, though, in the ancient Near East. Uh, there's a thing called the Sumerian Kings List. We have several different versions of this in, archaeologically. Uh, but it's, it's these Mesopotamian cities were keeping track of their origins. And it goes deep, deep. I mean, it's trying to tell a deep, deep history going way back. And also, similarly, people a long time ago had said that they lived really long lives. Actually, they tell tens of thousands of years for some of these kings. So, I don't even know what to make of all that. <laughs> it makes sense, it must have made sense in the ancient Near East because there are other, we know there are other cultures that tell a similar story. But whatever we're supposed to make of the ages, I don't actually think that's what the 120 years is about. Because in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20, we're told that the Spirit prophesied to the people at the time of Noah. We're told in 2 Peter 2, 5 that Noah was a herald of righteousness. In other words, Noah was considered a prophet. Now, the later stories we're going to read come next week. You don't hear him prophesy. I think this is the moment he prophesies. That there's 120 years left until God judges the world. Maybe I'm not entirely right. I don't know. But it is true that God's bringing judgment, right? He's making that much crystal clear. And here's the deal. Why does God judge? There's no talk about God's anger here. Instead, in verse 6, we get God's regret and his grief. In verse 7, his sorrow over making humanity. Now, I'm not trying to slight the idea that God doesn't have, that God has righteous anger. He does have righteous anger. He has such a thing as wrath. That's a sermon for another time. What I'm asking is why. What I think this passage is telling us is why does God become angry? What is the motivation for that? And look, God's emotions are a difficult theological problem. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that's been written over the years about this. Because there's actually other places, right, where we're told, like, God doesn't, God doesn't experience emotions the way you experience them. 1 Samuel 15 says this, that God will not lie or have regret. It's the same Hebrew word. <laughs> For he is not a man that he should have regret. Also in that passage, it tells us that he's sorry about the kings. Anyway, it is, when we try to put all this together, right, and this is how, this is a good way, another instructive moment in using Scripture, right, is we're trying, we, we want to hear how Scripture interprets itself, right, how it works together. And we get this picture as, as God's emotion, the idea of God's emotions start to come together. On the one hand, God is not like us being blown around by whatever situation happens to be going on. A lot of, this is why theologians have said that God doesn't have passions. Not meaning that he doesn't have feelings about things, but that the idea of passions is that like you and I, you know this because you're living in a pandemic, how easily our emotional state is blown around by our situation. 
how antsy you are by being stuck inside, by not being able to do the different things that you want to do. We're blown around by that. I mean, how many parents out there have snapped at your child because of what they did and immediately regretted it? Those of you who have young children probably did that today already. It happens, right? We're blown around by our feelings. And what the Bible is telling us is God isn't like that. God doesn't fly off the handle. God doesn't have passions like that. Rather, God is steady. He has a definite, determined feeling about his creation, about those he has made. God's love is never failing. That's why he is patient and slow to anger. God is love. There's one thing we know about God, right? Before creation, before time even existed, if we can get our heads around that, who God was in and of himself was Father, Son, and Spirit, which means love was there. Love was part of it. And I'm driving at all this to get to this point that anger is not the thing motivating God. It is love that motivates God. Anger is the consequence of us violating what he loves. It is his response to how we violate what he has made that is good and beautiful. That's worthy of honor. That's why, I think that's why this passage doesn't start with anger. Again, God's anger is real, but it is the consequence of his love. It is not something that just kicks up willy-nilly because you happen to mess up today. God is angry at you. No, God loves. And that's why he becomes angry, which is also why he is patient. Not trying to minimize anger. Trying to show where it comes from. And we're going to talk more about judgment next week. But it's so important to understand that it comes from love. That is the very heart of it. That God is, is sorrowful for what we have made. Which is why it's so important to understand this language of grieving. Because this is the language of someone who loves deeply was lost something. And we're told similarly not to grieve God. Right? In Ephesians 4, Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And even when we experience, you know, there, there are some, of course, who will reject God and they will experience His wrath. But those who experience the consequences of their sin but are loved by God, it is not wrath, it is the discipline of a father who loves. I'm not saying that makes sense in the moment all the time. Sometimes it's very difficult to deal with. Sometimes we have to sort through our own guilt and shame in the midst of all that. But when we are convicted of sin, Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 calls it a godly grief. And that godly grief leads to repentance, which leads to salvation without regret. That's his turn of phrase, salvation without regret. See, the right kind of grief on our, our behalf 
leads us to move towards God. So we can put that regret behind us. So we can be reconciled with Him. That's what the process of repentance is all about. So knowing God's sorrowful heart teaches us, knowing that that comes out of His love teaches us what repentance is really about. It is not about being ashamed, but moving towards one who loves us. Moving towards Him, knowing that He doesn't want to reject us. He wants to receive us. Which I guess gets us to salvation, the last point here. There are, I've talked about Cain's genealogy. I haven't mentioned Seth's yet. Seth's genealogy tells a different story. You remember Lamech was the seventh in Cain's line. Well, the seventh from Adam through Seth is this guy named Enoch. Some of you may know that name. And we are told not much about Enoch other than this, that he walked with God. And that later God just took him up. One of two people that doesn't die in the Bible. And notice as we're hearing this story in chapter 6 about how things are going from bad to worse, how sin is going unchecked, we are told, yet Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And here's the deal. Enoch and Noah, are they much better than anybody else? That's not what we're told. We're not told that they are better people than anybody else. In fact, we will see later on that some, of, at least, of Noah's mistakes, some of his sin. What this is telling us is that God, even in the midst of things going from bad to worse, is not inactive. That God is still intervening along the way because Noah doesn't earn God's favor, God's favor finds him. You understand the difference? God is the one taking initiative. God is the one interrupting evil. To call Enoch, to call Noah. And that is the story of the Bible, is God interrupting evil to call us out. See, the mystery, of, the mystery is not why on earth God is angry at humanity. I mean, really? Look around. The mystery is not why God might be angry at humanity. The mystery is why he loves. The real profound mystery is that after all of our cruelties and our betrayals, our lies, that he still loves. That is a profound mystery. And it's hard to accept because it means that God's salvation is not up to you. It's not up to me. That He is the one who takes initiative. That He is the one who saves. In Psalm 3 and in Jonah 2, there's this refrain that salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's what we're seeing so clearly here. Salvation belongs to God, not to us. This is the story about how God delivers. And God's interruption of sin to save you is profound. 
And there's so much mystery in this. You know, John Calvin, who's known for talking about election, predestination, these sorts of things, he says, look, if you want to ask about why someone is saved or others, you know, first off, let's be, let's be honest. If you think that you are saved because you're better than somebody else, come on. Even if you think that it's that you have some insight, you're still saying that you're a better person than these others. And he says, though, but if you, want, if you try to ask what, what God's reasons are, if you try to get into the mind of God, it's like entering into a labyrinth. It's a phrase he uses several times throughout the Institutes to describe this kind of thing. Trying to guess the mind of God is like entering a labyrinth out of which there is no exit. This is the mystery of God's love. It is a thing we receive. It is not a, meant, it is not a thing meant to make us proud. It should be a humbling reality. A humbling truth that left to ourselves, we are no better than anyone else. And look, even if you're here and you're not a Christian, what this is telling you is that salvation belongs to God, not you. And certainly our hope is that you would believe, but we are still saying that that is God's work in you. And so if you're exploring, you can have confidence in that, that God will find you. He's already brought you here. So this is the deal. God interrupts in that way. But what we are learning in this story is that to make it effective, God is going to have to intervene in a much more profound way. You see, God, you see, this is it, right? We still deserve judgment. So for God to make good on his love, he's going to have to enter in himself. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, doesn't it? The roots of the problem are right here, way back at the beginning of Genesis. But all of it is leading, and, in, and in, you know, over and over and over again, what we see throughout the Old Testament leading up to this point you know, leading into the New Testament, is how profound the problem of sin really is, how deep it goes to the very heart, to our hearts that are only evil all the time. It is into that world that God sends the real Son of God. Not to take advantage of those who are here, but to give His own life for them, to die in their place. It is into this sin-sick world, it is into this world filled with evil as it is, to die for those who are evil, who left to themselves would simply reject Him, would always turn away. It is into that world that God has entered, that Jesus has powerfully given His life for us, that God laid down His rights in order to give what of himself to receive what we deserved. Not only that, but to take his life up again. That we might be raised up with him. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Remember that. It's really simple, isn't it? And yet it's so easy to forget over and over and over again. But this is the deal, no matter how dark the moment, 
no matter how, how dark the world seems around us, no matter how dark your own situation seems, what you've done, salvation belongs to the Lord. And He is powerful to save. He will not be deterred and He will not fail. It is God's doing. It's marvelous to behold, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that our salvation is not up to us. That You're the one who saves. And Your salvation is fueled by Your love. So it will not fail because You are love. And to make it effective, you've given your son. And to bring it home to us individually, you've sent your spirit. So pour out that spirit, we pray, that we might have confidence and courage today, this week, and forevermore. In Christ's name, amen.